Welcome to the Leadership Lessons Through Titus Bible Study. Our speaker this evening is Steve Joy. Steve Joy is a pilot with FedEx, and he's a man of God and loves the Word and has been a believer for a long time, and he's married to a lovely lady named Mary. So they are Mary and Joy, Steve Joy. Bless you. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come into your house and to study your word. We ask tonight that you be the real teacher, that you speak through me, and Father, anything that I have that gets in the way, Father, just push it aside. Father, let everybody's heart and ears hear what you want them to hear, and Father, we ask for your wisdom and enlightenment on this section of Titus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think everybody has a set of notes. And unlike all the fine people gone before me who've typed it up and made it look good, you guys are stuck with me, so you just got some handwritten scribble. So, anyways, we're concluding Titus this week, and we're reading the, we're going over the verse 9 through 15 of chapter 3, so I'll read it first. I have the New King James, and there may be other translations you have, but starting with verse 9, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject the divisive man after the first and second ammunition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychius, be diligent to come to me at Nicholas, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that may not be that we may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So this is the conclusion to the letter to Titus. And Titus was one of the people that um, Paul had a lot of confidence in. And he's writing to and he is... Paul had directed or left Titus um, in Crete. We had a fine discussion of Crete and the Roman um, um, occupancy by Tom. And Paul has gone through this letter encouraging Titus how to build up a church, what to look for in leaders, uh, how to encourage them. And he shows them the things that the leaders ought to be doing things they ought to be stopping, and he shows a list of the characteristics that are not good for leaders or for any believer for that matter. And so now he's going to conclude, and um, last week um, Chris went through some, some things that Paul told us, that these things were bad and these things were good. And so we're kind of tagging along with what Chris had done, and it starts off with this, but avoid 
foolish disputes and genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. So I want to I want to focus here a little bit on this foolish, foolish disputes, because what he's what he's not saying is that there's not going to be disputes in the in the church or amongst one another. There are reasons to have disputes. There's a lack of communication. Uh, maybe there's some new information uh, that they need to discern what the scripture is saying or what a letter from Paul is saying. Um, he's not saying there aren't disputes. He's qualifying that with foolish disputes. And so um, I've got some verses here. I'm going to get some volunteers to read a little bit. Who wants to read Proverbs 24.9? Well, I have an extra. Okay. Um, a full scheme is sin, and a mocker is detestable people. Now that's pretty interesting. In the proverb, we see that foolishness is actually sin. Now, I looked it up in the dictionary before I came tonight, and it talked about being silly, deceived, you know, um, strange or weird. But, but the scripture clearly says that foolishness is actually sin. So there's reason number one we want to avoid foolish disputes is because foolish disputes would be leading us into sin. Who wants to read Proverbs 19.3? The foolishness of man perverted his way in his heart credit against the Lord. So that we see that the foolishness not only is sin but leads us astray. How about Psalm 14.1? Again. Okay. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. There we go. The fool says there is no God. So why would foolishness be sin? Because the fool thinks that there is no God or that he's God himself or he denies God altogether. So, actually, if you look at Proverbs 14, 1, that's <laughs> I know, but it just, my mind was on Proverbs <laughs> at the time. But the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hand. There you go. And it dawned on me, oh, you're reading Psalm. Still says. Still says. And Second Timothy two thirty three. No. No. Twenty six. Well, okay. Oh, two twenty three. I mean, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to keep patient. There we go. So Paul instructed Timothy the same things he's instructing Titus, avoid foolish disputes. And then it also says genealogies. Now, to us, that wouldn't mean much, but it'd be sort of like saying, well, my daddy's better than your daddy, because... 
you know, or my grandpa did this, or my uncle did this or this. And in a way, that's a genealogy. We're, we're, we're putting our confidence in who our ancestors are. The Jews were really big about that. Um, if someone could read John 8.39... Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things that Abraham did. This is a conversation Jesus is having, and they immediately begin to rely on their genealogy. Well, wait a minute. Abraham's our father. That makes us right, because Abraham's our father. And Jesus is saying, well, you know, if you're truly... Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham says. But just having him in your bloodline doesn't qualify you to have righteousness. And so, um, in um, what I'm going to read, the Second Corinthians eleven. I'm going to read this one in a. Paul is talking about uh, in Second Corinthians eleven twenty two and twenty three. He's he's kind of dealing with a similar situation when he's he's talking to them about boasting in his weakness, and he kind of goes through this process. They are Hebrews, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labor, in more abundant, in stripes, above measure, in prison, more frequently, in deaths often. And he begins to address in this letter to the, the second letter to the Corinthians that he's dealing with a mindset that heavily relies on who they are and where they come from. And, and another letter, you know, you know, Paul, of all people, probably was being groomed to be the chief priest someday. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he was the, the guy that could claim all these things that they hung their righteousness in. And Paul's turning around saying, and it means nothing. It means nothing without Christ. And even earlier in our lessons um, in Titus, Titus 1.10, he writes, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Now, again, a circumcision is another term that would be for Abraham's seed. Because at that point in history, it was only the Israelites that were being circumcised, at least on a regular basis. Um, and that was a sign. And with Abraham, that was actually part of the covenant. that He was to do that as, a, as an act of faith. And 
being circumcised was a sign that you were an Israelite. So in this first verse, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions. We know contentions to be problems and troubles and, and stuff and strivings about the law. You guys remember in the, Jesus was walking in the Gospels? How often did someone come up and say, well, what's the point of this law or the point here? Which one is right? They ask him, which is the greatest commandment? And, of course, his response is to love God with all your heart and mind. The second is likened to love your neighbor as yourself. They were trying to trap Jesus all the time. They asked him questions like, is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And Jesus refers back to, haven't you heard, haven't you read? He always responded, haven't you read? In the beginning there was just one man and one woman. Their whole goal was to get him tripped up in the law. And they weren't able to do that. Um, it would probably be pretty easy to trip one of us up if we wanted to, you know, just drum about Bible theology. I'm sure we'd all mess it up somewhere. Um, and what Paul's warning Titus about is the Judaizers at that point in time, they were a sect of, that, would, that believed that, you know, if a Gentile is going to come into the faith, they really ought to be following the law. They really ought to be a Jew. Now, that was dealt with back in Acts uh, chapter 15, uh, verses 6 through 21, and primarily in verse 20, where they gave the um, the requirements. They had this, this, this discussion in Jerusalem about the fact that they were bringing in, that they were bringing in Gentiles into the faith and what that would mean to the faith and God had spoken with to Peter and Paul was you know beginning to minister to Gentiles and so there was this conflict wait a minute wait a minute before these Gentiles become Christians shouldn't they first become Jews and they came up with they had this discussion and in verse 20 it kind of um, pulls it all together well in verse 19 to 20 Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from polluted things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and things strangled, and from blood. And this council in Jerusalem decided that it wasn't required to make a Gentile first a Jew, to then become a Christian, and in fact, that they could just believe like they did by faith and have the rights of being a Christian without participating in any of the ritualistic parts of the law. And the way they could do that is the law wasn't there to make a man excel. It was there to demonstrate his failures and that the need for grace. And so the Gentiles who were beginning to turn to God, they didn't need to come and learn and understand about the law. Now, they did say, hey, there's a few things 
really would be bad for you guys to do. Things polluted by idols, um, you know, sexual immorality, things strangled and from blood. And those were things that were either really morally wrong or spiritually wrong or physically dangerous. You know, the blood of animals could be contaminated and some things like that. And there were some practices where they were eating stuff that still had blood in them, and there was some there was some pagan worship that included some of these things with the blood and the sexual immorality. So these were things that, hey, look, there really isn't a circumstance where anyone should be doing this stuff. But the point of everything was we're not going to be trying to make people learn about the law and try to follow the kosher laws. There were laws of things that they had to wear because the believers understood and the, and the leadership. And remember, this is a letter to the leader. Titus is the leader. He's setting up bishops. He's setting up deacons and elders. And so he's got to impart on them what's important. And that's why we spend some time on this verse talking about um, to you know avoid the genealogies because that's kind of a righteousness by who you are, um, foolish disputes because that's denying God. Uh, contentions or problems and striving about the law is trying to make the law more important than grace. Now, the law has its place, and there's important things, and there's profit in following some of the law, even for a Gentile. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. You know, that has benefits from following following that. But there's not a requirement that we have to learn about, you know, how many knots have to be um, in the in the uh, clothing and, and stuff. We're not gaining righteousness that way. If you would think that the Jewish people would run to this new covenant because they could get rid of that law that is nothing but entrapment. Aha, I got you. You broke the law. Because they had a law and everything. Well, and, and they were very legalistic. Um, and Or at least a portion of them were very legalistic. They measured the number of footsteps they take on a Sabbath and, and things like that. And they're missing the whole point of, of, of grace. Um, and, and then in the church, there were those trying to do both and insisting that you, I'm, Jesus, I'm, that you need to be circumcised. I'm in discussion with the uh, Christian became Jew, and it's like, wrong direction. <laughs> But it's giving up that law today. What is a law issue? Because you can't do it that way. Christ, even going, and this is a battle. No, you know you got to you got to come to the Torah. No, the Torah has to come to Christ. And so we're in the middle of their, you know, this balancing act on. Well, and, and there's a couple important things there. What, one is, there is a value in the law. Without the law, we may not comprehend what our true sinfulness is. You know, but we compare it to the law and say, wow, I can't do that. That shows us how fall 
short we fall. Paul also writes in the scripture, all things are legal for me. I don't know if he uses the word legal. All things, he can do all things. He says, but but not everything is profitable. And he's talking about the law. He's, he's, he can, he's not bound to the law, but you've got to be careful not to take it too far the other way. He said, well, I can just go do anything. You know what? There's some things in the law that if you violate those, it's not going to be profitable for you. If you kill somebody, you know, that's, there's a lot of ramifications. And there are earthly consequences. God can forgive it, but we need to be careful. So that, that's where he's going. He says, you know, we don't want to focus on the law, particularly since there was a lot of factions here um, about, that, you know, at this point in history, Christianity is still this kind of really new thing. And they're still trying to wrap their heads around. Prior to Jesus coming, they really didn't comprehend mercy and grace. You know, and this is something that, that's really difficult for them to wrap their heads around. So they do what we do. Well, let's go to what we know. <laughs> well, I know genealogies, and I know, I, I know stuff about the law, so let's argue about that, and maybe we can make our faith fit what we know instead of asking God to change us into where we need to be. All right, verse 10 says, Reject the advice of man after the first and second admonition. I can't pronounce that right. Of ammunition. This is a kind of a reference to um, Matthew 18:15. Who wants to read 18:15 through 17? Tommy, you want to read that part? Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, then thou hast gained thy brother. If he shall, if he will not hear thee, then take thee one or two more, and in the, the mouth of the two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Okay, so... That's 16. And if he shall neglect to hear them... Tell it to the church, and if he neglect to hear the church, then let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a, and a publican. Publican, yeah, that's like a tax collector. So um, there's some there's some words from our Lord about hey, if there's somebody who's messing up, a brother is in error, in sin. You need to be kind. You need to pull them aside and say, hey, you know, here's something that's going on and you need to deal with that. And if he doesn't want to receive your counsel, then bring two or three. And the, and the th- two or three of you begin in, in, in love. You begin to um, show them, hey, here's, here's what we're seeing and this is why this is wrong. Um, and that's the first and second. Then if he won't receive that, then there's actually some scripture that leads you to take him before the church. And then also if they reject that, you treat him as a non-believer. Um, and you you don't necessarily have to break off all relations and communication, but once they become, you treat him as a non-believer, it's a whole different ballgame. They're now a mission. 
You're not going to go hang out with them on Friday night um, and just hang. Your whole focus is how do we begin to restore this person? How do we begin to uh, reveal Christ to them? Um, and so what Paul's writing to Titus is rejecting a, if someone's going to remain divisive after you've gone and talked with them and after you've gone a second time with two or three, and the two or three was very important in the eyes of the Jewish law because in the eyes of the Jewish law, you really can't prove something unless you have two witnesses. So if I say something and it's just me, they may or may not believe me, but if I bring two witnesses, then in Jewish court, that, that established the fact. That was why when Jesus was being on trial, they had to find two people who would say he did these things. It was really difficult. Um, but that was, in Jewish law, two witnesses. And so that's why Jesus is telling him, bring two or three people and try to minister them that way. The, um, and I wrote down this verse, uh, Matthew 7, 3. And just when the Lord was speaking to me when dealing with a brother, and it's the verse about removing the plank from your own eye before you move the speck from your, your brother's eye. And any time we're going to approach somebody, uh, we need to be very careful that, that we're in righteousness. We need to cover it with prayer. You know, it's not a bad idea to speak to the elders of the church, hey, am I correct in doing this, um, and we know we have to deal with somebody in love. Um, I think a lot of when Joseph decided to divorce Mary, but he was going to do it in a – he was going to put her away quietly, and then the scripture qualifies, for he was a righteous man. When he had every right to publicly humiliate her, have her stoned to death, from from way it looked to him – but he chose the better way to protect her, send her away quietly, not in disgrace and shame. So that's a good example of how we should deal with our own brothers in church. You know, I, I hope the Lord will look on me one day if I ever have to try to correct a brother and judge that I dealt with that with love and, and righteousness. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Somebody want to read that? Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn, to turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetite. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So here we have it, avoid, uh, avoid division, and then ultimately that leads to being slave of your own appetite. So just as when Chris was teaching the other day, we saw that if you begin to behave in one behavior, it leads you to another behavior, which leads you to another one. Um, so... Being around people who are divisive, there's consequences. And we look in other parts of the scripture and we see, hey, there's some 
Paul's not just saying don't hang out with this guy. There's, he's protecting us. He's giving us some words of wisdom to provide us with some protection of what could happen to us. Second um, Thessalonians verse, or chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So this is kind of a parallel verse. He's cautioning there's some risk. Don't hang out with him, but you know what? You need to try to go ahead and correct him and try to bring him back to the fold with love. All right, here's some good ones. Um, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but the first psalm talks about blessed is the wise. Um, blessed is the man who walks in the counsel who walks blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delights in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on his law day and night. And they're just saying that you know there's there's a blessing that comes with wisdom by not walking with the ungodly. Again, we're expanding this verse about um, where Paul is told Titus to avoid divisive people. I can get someone to read uh, Proverbs 24, 1 and 2, and Proverbs 22, 24, and 25. Do not envy wicked men, do not desire their company, for their hearts plot violence, and their lips talk about making trouble. Okay. Let's got the other one. Don't make friends with an angry man, or don't be a companion of a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways, and entangle yourself in a snare. So here we go. Here's a couple more verses. Um, and notice that we're getting a good cross-section of Old Testament and New Testament, all cautioning us about the same thing, that when somebody's not walking with the Lord, that we need to be very cautious and not to ally ourselves with these people because there are consequences. As Greg read, it would entangle us in a snare. Excellent question. See, that's perfect. That's the perfect lead-in. What? What? Well, how do you minister to him? That's right. Okay, we have to witness to him. And so... This is a this goes with word share. No, 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 no,
confused and clouded because we see this scripture and we have to begin to unpack it. We went through several scriptures here that said, you need to be careful about the device of man, about the foolish disputes. What, what Paul is talking to Titus here about is, don't miss the boat. Remember, it's about grace. And if we remember, we went back into the verse prior to that, uh, verse 7 of Titus, of chapter 3, that having been justified by grace, that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable for men. And we're going to touch base a little later here, but he starts with justified by grace. Um, reflecting on what Bill's inside, Paul's writings, there's another place he's warning about something. He's saying, I'm not talking about the world, that to avoid these kind of people in the world, you have to leave the world. I'm talking about somebody calling himself a brother who's doing this. You can't be fellowship. Uh, and they'd have people who'd come in and and acted as a prophet in their church or an elder, gave them, and a lot of times, a lot of Paul's letters are letters of correction, and they've misunderstood something, or there's someone who has said, here's the way we're really supposed to do it. Um, he's talked here about the um, disputes about the, you know, about the law, and so he's kind of qualifying you know, a divisive man is not necessarily an unbeliever. This is someone who might be causing disputes within your church. This is how you deal with someone who's causing a problem and you can't let it continue. Earlier in the chapter, uh, earlier in chapter 1, um, the, uh, when, in verse 10, for there are, there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumstances, Verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped. He's talking about people within the body and who's relying on maybe their heritage, but they're talking in a way they shouldn't be. They're given false instruction. They're leading people astray. Here they're causing division. We have to make the body strong so we build each other up, edify each other, glorify the Father and the Son, and get our people strong and then begin to send them out. You know, we're not going to go hang out in the wrong places because that tears us down. And that's what he's saying. You've got to remember there were a lot of people coming at them from a lot of different ways. You had the Romans coming at them. You had the non-believing Jews. And there was a lot of hangover from what they used to believe that people were kind of hanging on to. That's why he's dealing with um, – about these disputes about the law, why he's talked about the people of the circumcision. The worst enemies sometimes were the people sitting right there in the pews. And they had to find ways in love to begin to bring them in line with the concepts of grace. We, In this letter alone, Paul has bounced back and forth between it's all about grace, but we have to do things now that we're believers to, to honor the Lord, but we have to remember that doing things doesn't get us saved. Did I answer the question? 
because, you know, Paul said he becomes all things to all people. You know, if he's dealing with some Gentiles that were eating pork, I suspect what he meant was he'd lay down the kosher law. Now, if they were dedicating blood to idols or food to pagan gods, I think Paul's going to participate in something like that. Well, when he says, you know, beneficial to keep some of the laws, that's just Iowa's automatically thinking of, oh, yeah, don't eat pork, shellfish. And you were thinking, <laughs> you know, the heavier laws. All right. So this kind of ends the, uh, you know, and it says, um, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, and self-condemning, and I think we've kind of covered all that in these verses. Go ahead, Chris. Does that, does that sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> does that mean they're still Christians? I mean, that the fruit is not there, are they still? Well, I'm going to answer like this. First off, I'm not going to be able to tell you who's a Christian. It's not only God can, but, but there are, the, the scripture does say, there's fruit. I'm going to put it to you like this. We're believers. We believe in Jesus Christ. What about the Baptist church down the road? They they believe, you know, they're, they're I got salvation. What about the Methodist church or the Presbyterian? You know, we all have some differences, and we're, we're all going to have some areas of Scripture that we think we've got down that we're going to have messed up. But the general concept of salvation is do we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to come in and do what we are unable to do for ourselves and make us righteous in front of the Father. And if you accept that as from according to Scripture, if you trust Jesus Christ to provide you salvation to the Father and you're relying on that, then Scripture indicates you're a Christian and going to be in heaven. And you can have everything else wrong about baptism, about works, about things you think you need to do or things you don't think you need to do or things like that. But the qualifying, John 3:16, for whosoever believeth shall not perish but have everlasting life. Um, yes, and, sir. I have an answer for your, not say it's the answer, but an answer. Matthew 25 talks about the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish, meaning the five foolish didn't make it in. So, Technically, you can be a Christian and not make it in, because that's what... You can be a Christian and be under discipline when you do as well. The picture I had when he asked the question, I had a picture of just a family. Mm -hmm. Like, I've got kids. Say I adopt kids, and let's just call them older, because you can't kick out your little kids, okay? Right. Maybe you could separate them, but you adopt all these kids, and there's one that's just won't obey, won't get a line. You know, it's just you separate that child from the other kid. And this is where my question came from was, okay, well, well, they're still in the family. He's not out of the family. He's under discipline. And that's what you're saying is, well, what it is is not going well. Get out and stay out. Don't ever come back. Okay, but, but, even, hey, but even, if, even if you said something like that, did you legally adopt them? Yeah, they would be fine. Even if you kicked them out of the house, would that adoption still not be legal? Right. But would they still not be legally 
part of your family. We're talking legality, but here in the church I've seen it where it's a heart issue, where you separate from the individual, and I've seen it happen where it wasn't a heart issue, it was a um, get out or don't come back, or you know what I mean? But the heart of it, the spirit of it is what I'm digging into Mm -hmm. saying it's not for just getting rid of the person, right? It's it's for they need that uh, whoever brought up the uh, prodigal son almost. They need that experience to go through and go, man, I could be eating way better than this. (laughs) And, you know, they come to themselves and wake up and that's.
to go and confront the person in love, you know. Yeah. And uh, beg them to, I mean, I've said on the floor to beg people, please, stop, please. Um, but we've never had to run anybody off. I think it's because in America, we're all independent. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. So just that second, going to that second step pretty well puts them on the road if they yeah. don't that. Uh, I'll go somewhere else. Yeah, many choices. And back then, there wasn't many choices. There was only one choice. There was only one synagogue in town. And you know what? The Heavenly Father is out there in the wilderness. And they come back and repent, but maybe circumstances prevent them from coming back into this congregation. One of the things I think not really pointing to, but was speaking about was. They don't repent, they don't repent, they don't repent. The church says, and they tell the synagogue, I'm not going to repent. Okay, go out there. But it still said to minister to them. It didn't say to ostracize them. Oh, you believer. And, and, and there are a lot of churches that, man, once, once you're out of yeah. church, you are ostracized, and there is no redemption for you at all. There's no scripture for that. There is. There is. There is. But there's a lot of practice of that. Absolutely. And, and, and that practice is just as wrong as doing nothing. And let them but some people will do that to you and then say they've been ostracized from the table. Yeah, well, I have a trivia question. A what? A trivia question. Okay. Because uh, the protection is belonging to a synagogue, I've been up with the structure as I read the time that the Jews are punished because they stimulate it to other groups. They, they go to the Bible today, I hear that there's a real small percentage of believing Jews in Tel Aviv that no, most of the Jews are secular. Is there a trivial answer to back in those days? Were they all synagogue-going Jews, or was it a high percentage of secular Jews? Well, I think it's it's a little different back then because there were protections afforded by being part of the synagogue. So I think you're going to have people who are way sincere. Your question is, at this point, Jews were still Jews by blood. They, they were born into it. It wasn't a matter of, hey, this is what I believe. It was a matter of, you were born to the tribe. You were a Jew. You were only kicked out of the synagogue if the priest said, okay, you're no longer a part of family. The hypocrisy rises if they all got fake idols, if they all visit the horse, oh, if they all, well, and they're all doing these things, but it's like, oh, you broke the law. Today, the secular Jews don't go to the synagogue and stuff. They don't have the same kind of motivations. Back then, there was a lot of motivation. You know, whether it be whether it be for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, most of them attended at least attended the synagogue. All right, so keep us from running out of time. Let's let's uh, look at this last. Paul shifts here from writing about um, some instruction to he's, he's kind of laying out what's going to happen or what he wants to see happen with him and some of the other ministers. When I send Artemis to you, 
Articius, be diligent to come see me at Nicolas, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So he's getting ready to send to Titus one of these guys or the other ones. And so I looked up, and there's in his, and he also references Zenus the lawyer and Apollos. And so the um, information on Artemis and Zenus, I didn't find any other reference in the scripture about them. There seems to be really little or no information. What we do know is that they're, if they're hanging out with Paul, and if they're trusted enough to be sent on his behalf, we know that they're probably pretty solid in the script, or at least in their faith and understanding. They're, Paul trusts them enough to be a representative for, for him. And since he's an ambassador to Christ, he's entrusting that ambassadorship with these, with these men. And so even though there's not a lot spoken about them, we know that because they're dealing with Paul, he's a mighty man of character. Um, Tychius, on the other hand, is referenced five times in the New Testament. Um, and let's see, in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, Paul's talking, and he says, And Sokar of Berea accompanied him to Asia also, Articulus and, well, I should have had someone read this first. Um, anyways, he gets down there and says, and Timothy, and Tychius, and Tropius of Asia. And so we see that, that Tychius has been a companion of Paul, at least for some time, and he was probably a contemporary of Timothy and Titus. I would assume that Paul's groomed these guys up, and now he's sending them out um, in both Colossians 4.7 and Ephesians 6.21. Some of that's Colossians 4.7. I'll read 6.21 while you're looking it up. Go ahead, Bill. That's all my affairs. I thought that was the Messiah. Okay. And then Ephesians 6.21 but that you may also know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychius, a beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will make all things known to you. So um, we see from both of those that there's a very similar description um, of who he is and who he is to Paul and who he is to the Lord. And he's clearly very trusted um, and he's going to explain Paul's affairs. He's going to make all things known. Um, and I think, if you look at 2 Timothy 4 12. Go ahead. And Tychius, I have to Ephesus. Yeah, so he's, he sent them to Ephesus. And these guys were also, if we read a little further in uh, Titus, um, and send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journeys with haste, that they may lack nothing, and let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet our urgent needs, that we may not be unfruitful. So these guys are probably also responsible for gathering offerings, tithes. They're probably carrying probably large sums of money with them, or at least enough to handle 
situations, um, super highly trusted people. Apollos, that, he's kind of an interesting character in Acts uh, 20, 18 24. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos was born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and a mighty in the scripture came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew he he, he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogues when Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the ways of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross into Acacia, the brother wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he is vigorously refuted, and the, the Jews publicly showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So he is a guy who was trained, well, understood scriptures, was teaching. Sounds like he was even teaching about Jesus, but he had some missing information because he only understood the baptism of John. And just like the first and second, have <clears throat> Amat, and Mashna came to Right. But here, he clearly received that information from Aquila and Priscilla, took it with gladness or however, and began to preach even more boldly, showing how Jesus was the Christ. I think this is an example of someone being pulled aside and saying, hey, wait a minute, you're missing something. Instead of in prideful, pride and being mad and rejecting it, I think he clearly received it because apparently he continues in a mighty way. Um, and later, if we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 11 and 12, Paul, um, for, it is, for it has been declared to me Concerning you, my brethren, by the house of Chloe's, by those of Chloe's household, that there are certain contentions among you. Now I say that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And, and he goes on to talk about how Christ shouldn't be divided. But it's, I think it's interesting we see here, Apollos was thought enough of by enough people that he may have had some type of disciples. You know, Paul clearly had people who were hanging out, following and learning. Um, I don't know if Paul would have referred to them as disciples, but Tychius, Timothy, Titus, these are all guys who Paul trained up and sent out. Um, and it looks like Apollos might have had some people that were looking to him for the same thing because now what we have going on as people are beginning to try to create a faction in the church and say, well, I'm, I'm a follower of Paul or I'm a follower of Apollos, and Paul is dealing with that's, that's a wrong attitude, that it's really we're all followers of Christ helping each other out. Um, but I think the scripture is interesting because it shows that at least at some point 
he's got other people looking for him for wisdom. And so, and Paul and he are clearly working together because in Titus we see that Apollos is being sent on a journey by Paul. Did I get that clear? All right. Also, Napoleus means city of victory. She's probably somewhere in the south. And uh, there's an Acropolis on the map. And uh, probably a, that's and and it's probably a really nice place uh, to spend your winter. And I only put the map on here because I thought it'd be interesting for us all to kind of kind of look at all the places Paul went. The seven churches are on there. Um, the um, and the places that Paul visited. The um, by the way, you probably didn't this on purpose, but just to point out, you probably could have added 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I got 1 Corinthians 3, 4 on right. right. But then 3, 3, 6 is where it says, I, I planted the false water, but God gave the increase. Mm-hmm. So, Thank you, and that's good. I missed that one. I just got it. Because that adds to the, that adds to the flavor of... So... Paul's ministry. That's good, Rick. Thank you. So anyways, he concludes with, let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet our urgent needs that they may be may not be unfruitful. And we're back to that works thing. Um, and we really beat that with a hammer last week. But it's clear that works are important. That we've become believers as Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 for by grace we've been saved, lest anybody boast. Not by your works, but purely by grace. And then in verse 10 it says, but now to go ahead and walk in those good works to which God has prepared for you to do beforehand. Okay. Clearly, justified, saved by grace. But if you're really a believer, you want to join in, you want to help every, you want to help others become believers, you want to support missionaries who are out there uh, ministering to people. Um, and those are the good works he's talking about. Paul clearly needs some support. He needs, probably needs some encouragement. You know, he's been a missionary. He's been arrested. He's probably discouraged. He may or may not get to go where he wants to go. Um, uh, he, he needs others to come around him to keep him going, and we all do. Um, and so part of those good works are taking care of each other. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's just listening to someone who's going through a hard time or it's encouragement. Maybe it's a word of advice. Um, and, you know, you got to remember, again, the context at which this letter is written is Paul is instructing Titus how to set up the church leadership. And he's including in here to allow people to do good works so that as it says, um, to meet urgent needs, and that could be Paul's his ministry team, or it could be the local church's urgent needs, but they may not be unfruitful. And you know that's sort of like uh, good works, like tithing, for example. You know, a lot of times when we become new believers, or certainly people outside the church, would look at something like tithing as well. Does God God needs that money? And you know what? He really doesn't. But we need to trust him enough to give up what we part of what we have 
and there are others around us that, that, you know, through the gifts of the church that we send out ministry teams, we support missionaries, there's benevolence, um, and sometimes we do that on our own. Sometimes it's also wise to go to the church. There's a wisdom in going to the church and the elders who may know more about situations that we know. But it would be to deprive the members of the – someone came in and gave $10 million for our church, and if our church leadership stood up and said, we don't want anyone else to tithe, that would be to take away an opportunity for someone to demonstrate good works that want, later when they're in front of the Lord – who wants to hear those words, or I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Part of that's being faithful to, to the giving. And so these are part of the good works that Paul is telling Titus to encourage people to do. Some of it's financial, some of it's just helping. Actually, tithing is not. Technically, it's not an option. Because tithing isn't. The command was bring. That's right. It wasn't give. It was bring it because it's not yours to begin with. It's it's God's. Well, it's all His. And there's only one place in the Bible where I thought there was two, but there's only one place in the Bible where the 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 church leadership said stop giving, and that was Moses. The people gave so much for the building of the temple, the gold and the, the jewels. I thought it was. I thought that it also happened when they built Solomon's temple, but I can't find it. But in Exodus 36, Solomon, Solomon found the place for it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if today, if today churches? I'm not talking about the tithing, but the giving. If, if, if churches actually people were giving freely and abundantly, mm-hmm. where the churches would say, "Stop giving! You're giving too much." That would be an amazing thing. That'd be amazing. good. Vince, you had a question. You know, um, I think the one thing that we forget is that when, when God came and gave us a son to save us, he didn't save us to live. That's right. He saved us to have a quality of life for him. And that quality of life is in the son of Jesus. And when we're told that, that good works are part of our Christian walk, it's not because it's just another lifestyle that we see good works in the world of God. Good works are the way that God teaches us his wisdom. But in everything we do in good works, we always gain knowledge and wisdom about the cause of how God works in the body of Christ. And so a lot of times when people tie in good works with, well, if you're saved, you're going to have good works. Well, if you're saved, you're also going to suffer. Is right. And if you're saved, you're also going to have trials and tribulations. Good works is just another application of how God is using the body of Christ to teach all of us the wisdom and knowledge we need to have the mind of Christ. And so as we become fruitful, and the fruitfulness of good works is not that we get something good. It's that it shows the love of God, it teaches us wisdom, it gives us guidance, and it produces it produces what God wants in God's kingdom. And I think a lot of times when we classified good works as being part of the sign of somebody saved or not saved, we're eliminating what God's trying to do. Well, we're not to judge whether someone's saved or not saved. But, we, but, but fruitfulness, you know, at least helps us know how to disciple somebody. And, um, well, there's a, 
You know, we forget, though, there is another aspect of this, particularly since we're trying to put this in the context of the early church. And good words were such a, they were, this instruction was received so well by the early believers that the Christians actually became labeled as those crazy people that when a plague struck the city and everybody cleared out, they went out. those Christians would go in and stay mm-hmm. and take care. And so God was using not only, I mean, yeah, he's using the good words to grow his kingdom. And these, and these early believers, they received this instruction very literally. Okay, I got it. We're going. They would, they would, they were, they were the firemen that ran into the burning building of the day, if you will. And they were, that was notable in that, in that culture. And people were going, what is it? What makes it, what makes them different? Yeah, that's how we started the whole, the whole book, right? Was that they were lazy and the Greeks, you know, the Greeks. The the whole island was no good. Yeah, right. I want to read this just real quick. Again, the emphasis is on a good deed as the platform for witnessing effective. There you go. I thought, oh, that's a great sentence. Because that's that's what we're talking about. Yeah. There's a witness right there. And I see that I see that for me at work with unbelievers, these kids, and they're sneaking around the rules and they're doing different things and I'm like, man, I'm not not gonna do that. Or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not only witnesses, but it also is the uh, you know, like, like you're talking about the law, where it's like all of a sudden now you're measured, and you're like, oh, I don't match. No, I'm not trying to do that. But when I say things like, you know, it's not something I want to do, or I'm not going to do that, or we're going to, let's be honest, you know, it all of a sudden it lines up something. You know what I mean? I don't know. Well, you know, it's perfect, because there's a scripture that says, um, I think in Corinthians, where it says, a man should examine himself daily. Um, and he needs to make sure that he's, Walking out of space. Well, that's walking out of space. Yeah, the um, here in, in Titus one sixteen it says they profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him, being an abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And so behavior, you know, there you have the motive, disqualifies the work. Go ahead, Tom. Well, one of the things at that time also along with what Greg was saying, that the Christians in doing the good works, they were not asking for anything in return. That's right. It wasn't, I'll come do this for you, but what are you going to do for me? So, that was a prevalent way of operating in society back then. Yeah. And, and they, that, they gave up the, what are you going to do for me? We'll just come in and help you and not ask for anything in return. And they just like, well, you, you can't do that. People don't do that. Well, this, this How sort of, can you possibly do that? <laughs> well, that's sort of like when Jesus made the statement, if someone asks you to walk a mile, go two. Now, he's specifically talking about the Roman soldiers had the right, when they were coming in to wherever they were, to get someone to carry their pack one mile. So he might walk and say, Chris, come here. Here's my pack. And they weren't light packs. And you were required to go a mile. At the end of the mile, you could set it down, and he'd get somebody else. And Jesus said that, hey, if they ask you to go a mile, that's your requirement. You're required to do that. Go to. Because in the second mile, you're off the clock. You're free 
You don't have to do that. You carry it. Now you can start witnessing. Now you can start demonstrating um, the love of Christ. You're carrying armor that's used to oppress your people. It's pretty awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. So, it's about 60 to 70 pounds worth of armor. So this is just all good character building. So that pretty much concludes the book of Titus. I had two verses that just kept calling me out. And I don't know if they have anything to do with our lesson tonight, but I wrote them down here. Second Corinthians 5, 7, 17. You know, we're all new creatures in Christ, you know. And since Titus is about building a church, we have to recognize that everybody's new. That means everybody's still learning. And there's a lot of things that people have to, to get past. But we are new, and we have to put that old man behind. And I'm going to tell you, I'm the worst I'm more guilty probably than everybody else of when I get frustrated, I go right back to that old man. Well, I know how that operates, and you got to just begin to step it out and walk it out in faith and, and know that God has a great thing. And the other verse I wrote down was 2 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sin because as leaders deal with people, whether they're fellow leaders, maybe even superiors or people in the congregation, um, we have to remember to deal with everything in love. And as we all know, love isn't how you feel about somebody. It's a choice in how you're going to treat them in spite of how you feel. And the scripture gives us several characteristics of how to treat somebody. Um, so, you know, even in dealing with a person who is uh, divisive and even in the rejection, that can still be an act of love because you're doing what is the best for him to get his attention, to get him to repent and come back to the Lord. Um, and so you have to look at things like that. Um, and I, so I just wanted to throw that out about how we have to bathe this entire thing in love.